apart from these other things, because God's Word is where we learn to handle whatever comes up in front of us, no matter what it might be, good or bad. And we've been examining for the last few times this thing of fear and the good and the bad of it, how to use fear to our advantage, how to uh, not be afraid when there are things obviously human beings normally would be afraid of, how to handle this subject, because it is a monster of a subject. Everyone has all kinds of fears. That is something that is germane to the human corpus <laughs> uh, that we have here as, as a body of people on the earth as well as individuals. <clears throat> there are all kinds of things that would make us fear, and especially now as we get into the end of this age. I want to go to Genesis 31 to start today. We've been examining a few examples from Adam down through our fathers that we're told to be looking to at this end time. And I want to pick it up here because Jacob was still working with Laban, uh, his father-in-law. Remember, he had gotten Leah and then Rachel. And it was time then to leave there and take his wives with him and really begin his own life as opposed to living under uh, Rachel's tent and umbrella. So he decided to go, and he had a problem. He stole away basically in the night when Laban was out shearing his sheep. And Laban had changed his wages ten times. He was living always in uncertainty with Laban. Uh, he had betrayed him in terms of the daughter. He thought he was to get Rachel and wound up with Leah and then had to work seven more years for Rachel. So he had gotten to the place he didn't trust Laban much. When somebody recuts the deal on you ten times and then counted eleven, that was just wages, counted eleven when it comes down to who you marry. Uh, those are some pretty big items. And uh, that instilled within Jacob a certain fear of what Laban might do next. Because it was always that way and never changed. Anyway, when Laban saw that he was gone... He got a three-day head start, and Laban pursued very heavily for seven days, and lathered up the camels and horses uh, to try to catch Jacob. And he had in mind some pretty horrible things, I'm sure. You know, the man had taken away what Laban considered his, even though they were really Jacob's, the cattle, the sheep, the oxen, the camels, and so on, and the daughters and grandchildren. And this made Laban, Laban exceedingly angry, so that he had a hot pursuit. And you know, when you're really angry with someone, uh, you can imagine all kinds of things you might do to them when you catch them. That's the human mind, uh, from torture to death, uh, and dismemberment, or whatever. Uh, the human mind can go some pretty dark places when it is truly angry with someone else. But even though Jacob was fleeing in his mind for his life and for his family, uh, God saw what was happening, didn't he? 
God went to Laban in a dream while he was in hot pursuit of Jacob. I'm not going through the whole story here again, uh, but just a brief thumbnail sketch of it. God appeared to Laban in a dream, and he says, Don't you say anything good or bad to Jacob when you catch up with him. Now, that probably scared Laban some, that he had a dream from God, and it made him uncertain. He probably began to sort of back off of some of the things that he had purposed in his mind to do when he caught the man. So when he did catch up with him, he says, What have you done? And you've also stolen my gods. I'm down in verse 20 on that one. Or 30, I guess it is. And uh, verse 31, Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. I was afraid of you. I was afraid of what you might do. And I said, you would take by force your daughters from me, grandchildren and everything. So he was fearful of losing what he had, perhaps losing his life. So he fled. And then he, and then he didn't know that Laban's gods had been stolen. So he says, whatever man has taken your gods, let him die. And he didn't know that Rachel had done it. Had he known Rachel would have done it, that would have really scared him. Because he was already afraid he would lose the, the wife that he loved, as well as his other one and his children. Anyway, uh, the story turned out that Laban didn't do anything against him. Didn't hurt him in any way. He went on his way. Because he was doing what God had said. God had asked him to pick up and move to another area and to live there instead of with Laban. Now, God allowed Jacob to be in a position where he would have great fear. Didn't he? Could God have prevented that? Could Jacob possibly have gone to Laban and said, I, I'm going to leave and I'd like your blessing. Laban even said, if you'd have come to me, I'd have had a party, a going away party and giving you gifts and everything else. But you ran away in the night out of fear. Now, whether Laban really would have done that or not, I guess is a moot point. But God could keep all trouble that might appear on the horizon, away from us. He could put angels about us at all times so that we would not have anything to fear, couldn't he? But he doesn't. Jacob had a very important lesson to learn here. It was that if God tells you to do something, you go do it. And you don't worry about how it's going to turn out. Yes, as a human being, fear might grab you right in the throat. But you don't react to it. You trust God. And when this all thing, whole thing came down, the things that Laban, I mean that Jacob feared the most, God took care of before Laban ever even got there. God saw everything that was going on. He had a solution figured out to solve the problem. Now, what Jacob had to draw from that was, 
Why should I fear Laban when I have God on my side? Why should we fear anybody if we have God on our side? Now, there have been a lot of people in this nation who have thought they were Christians and thought they had God on their side. And they went to war with others in Europe, for instance, who were also so-called Christians and who prayed, and they thought God was on their side. Sincerely, in each case, both sides, the Allied and the Axis in World War II, both sides prayed to the same God. We won't discuss which God here, but they did pray to the same God. And they all felt God would deliver them. And yet many, many tens of thousands died on both sides who had sat in their foxholes and prayed that morning that God would deliver them, and God didn't, and they died. There's a problem there in that neither side was obeying God. Neither side was following God's direction. We called ourselves a Christian nation. Those people over there called themselves a Christian nation. Neither were Christian nations. God was with neither side. Except that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give this land to us and that he would protect us in it because of Abraham's obedience. So it was Abraham's faithfulness that somewhat protected us and created the miracles at Normandy and so on that caused us to win the war, if winning is indeed the case. Less loss, perhaps, but you know what I mean. But it was not our obedience that led to that protection. We need to know, and know that we know, that we worship the true God, and we obey Him and serve Him with all our hearts, and then trust Him. Jacob had not fully learned that at this point in his life, so he feared and ran rather than facing the situation and finding a solution with Laban because he knew that God would work the thing out, but instead he fled. That was not the correct answer to the problem. But since God was working with Jacob specifically, even though Jacob did the wrong thing in this case, God worked it out for him and taught him something. God allows our fears to come upon us to see what our reactions will be to cause us to look to his word and to look to him to figure out what is happening and what the solutions are. Now, we have seen great terror, great fear, great spiritual confusion and frustration in the church over the last 25 years. 
Most have not truly searched God's Word to find the answers and the proper reaction to the problem. And 90% of the church is going to go into the Great Tribulation because they do not know. And their greatest fears are going to come upon them. Now we have these lessons back here to learn from. We are to look to our fathers. Some of you are in fear right now of losing your jobs. Quite a few of you because of a changeover in the employment situation. Will you lose your jobs? I don't know. Did God give you those jobs? I think that He did. How could so many of us wind up in the same spot and in a, what I consider a very important spot? And was there a reason for that? I believe so. Will you be fired from that? Possibly so. Is it the end of the world? Not at all. If God put you there for a purpose, and we do believe God is in our lives, do we not? Then if He allows you to be terminated from there, He must also have a purpose. Right? If He's involved in our lives, He knows exactly what He's doing. And He has solutions figured out ahead of time. But we fear. We fear not having work. We fear not having money. We fear a lot of things. Do we have enough fear of God? He who can solve all problems and has proved it over and over. <clears throat> this is a very minor one by comparison to many of the problems God has solved for his people throughout the ages. The story of Jacob and Laban. He even delivered Jacob from some much worse things than this. But God used the print in here, a lot of it in fact, to tell this one simple story. <clears throat> if God burned that much space in the Bible, then there must be something here to learn. There was something for Jacob, and it was written. See, Jacob knew the story. If he learned the lesson, end the story. Don't write it down. It was just for Jacob. But if God preserved it through all the ages, down to the end time, and told us to turn our hearts to our fathers, then the reason it was written was so that we might learn how to handle our fears, how to handle our lives. Anyway, Jacob went on, chapter 32, and the angels of God met him. Now, God was working with him. He was in Jacob's life. <clears throat> and he was going to have to go through his brother Esau's territory. Now, he knew, and this is a lot worse than Laban, he knew that Esau wanted to kill him 
and hated him with a purple passion. That Esau had sworn to kill him. Verse 7 of chapter 32. Now, he had just been through a lesson, hadn't he? That God had delivered him with Laban. Verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two bands. He said, at least I'll divide. One go this way and one that go that way. And then if Esau comes and kills us all... While he's killing one bunch, the other bunch will get away and my life will be, or my posterity will be preserved. So that's how afraid he was. Now, perhaps he had learned something. Notice what he does. He said, if Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. In verse 9, and Jacob said, all right, maybe he had learned something here. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Eternal which said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, and I will deal well with you. He starts out by proclaiming that God was the God of Abraham and Isaac, his father and his grandfather, and that therefore God was involved with the family, And then he reminded him of his promise. He says, God, you said that you would deal well with me. You would take care of me. So the fear that came upon him was a natural fear, wasn't it? We fear for our lives. We fear for our families. We fear for our well-being. It's a natural thing that grabs a human being when danger arises. But what do you do? He reminds God of what God had said. Now, we're entering a time when (coughs) great fear is a real danger, or the real danger is going to create great fear. We're told to pray that we be accounted worthy to escape these things that are about to come upon the nation. We should have been praying that we would escape these things coming upon the church. And I think God is giving us some answers in those, that line because we have reacted somewhat in that way. But notice his attitude. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies. He admitted he was a human being. He admitted he had weaknesses and faults. He admitted he didn't know everything. He admitted he wasn't all-powerful. In other words, he came humbly before God... I'm not worthy of the mercy and of all the truth. Now, we could say the same. God has shown us what has happened to the church and why. He has also shown us the solution to the problem. And we could go to God and say, we're not worthy of this. There are many, many, many people out there in the church of God who are certainly as good a people, maybe a lot of them a lot better, a lot smarter than we are. So we're not worthy of your mercies. We're not worthy of the knowledge you've given us and the truth which we have. 
Do you, do I, deserve the truth we have learned in these last 15 years more than anyone else does? No, we don't deserve it anymore. Maybe we deserve it less. Maybe we're even of the church, the weak and the base. So that God's glory might be shown. <clears throat> anyway. I'm not worthy of the least of the mercies and of all the truth which you have showed to your servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. I am so scared, Father, <clears throat> that I have divided my family into two groups to try to save some. And yet, even with this precaution, I still fear half my family and maybe I will die at the hands of my brother Esau who sworn to kill me. <clears throat> That's all implied in this prayer. Deliver me, I pray you, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. He admitted his fears before God. So be willing to admit and be willing to bow before God and say, I know I don't deserve it, but I'm afraid, and I have good reason to be afraid, just physically looking at what's going on. Please help and deliver me. And then it reminds God again of promises. And you said, God, you said, I will surely do you good and make your seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. <clears throat> so he reminded God of what he had told him, what he had promised him. And he was delivered. Esau saw him and ran and kissed him. Now that is a change of attitude. Now that didn't change the unending prophecy that Esau would hate Jacob his entire life and that that hatred would extend through his seed until today and that Esau or Edomites would help destroy Jacob, that's us, in the end time. And laugh at our calamity. Read the book of Obadiah. But he was delivered. Now we can also be delivered as he was. We need to go to God as these fears pile up and as we get closer to this thing and as it comes down. We need to go to God and say we don't deserve your mercy. We don't deserve the truth you've given us. But you promised us. We are the seed of Jacob, and you promised Jacob that you would give us the land that you promised to him, and here we are. Deliver us in this land that you've said is going to be destroyed. Now there's a prayer you can take home with you. There is an approach to learn from Jacob that you can use. Now there was another test with Jacob. He'd gone through the one with Laban and didn't do too well. He got to the one with Esau and he did a whole lot better. Approached God directly, humbly, and in claiming promises. Then he came and faced Christ himself. 
And it's at the end of this chapter. And any case you find where angels have appeared or Christ himself has appeared before men, there's great terror. Because it is an awesome and frightening business. So when Christ presented himself before Jacob at the end of this chapter, I'm sure he was quite terrified. But they got in this wrestling match and Jacob would not turn loose of God. That's the key factor here. In great fear of his life, he would not turn loose of God. And he prevailed with God. And in the morning, Christ told him, you have prevailed and you will be blessed. You hung on to me no matter what. Even though you got very tired and it hurt and I was stronger than you, you hung on. And then he touched his thigh and made him limp probably for the rest of his life as a reminder of that lesson. It would have done Jacob no good to ask God to heal his leg, his thigh, so that he could walk properly from there, there on, or from there forward, because God had done it on purpose. And sometimes we have to live with things to remind us of what has gone and what lessons we might have learned. So Jacob went through <clears throat> some pretty traumatic, fearful moments here and experiences that he had to learn from. Will God allow things to happen to us to bring fear? Yes, he will. He has and he will yet. We may fear some of the local government, that they might take our homes. Is that a possibility? It is within the realm of possibility. We don't do everything they say. Now, do you believe that God brought us here? Do you believe we constructed the kind of community that he intended us to construct? I do. I knew ahead of time how it would be. What would happen? And it did. Even though I had forgotten some of the details and suddenly woke up one day and said, Wow, this happened just like I knew it would. Fear is natural. How do you handle it? What do you do? Now, this is just a small thing. Very small thing. There are bigger things coming that will instill a far more fear. Maybe this is <clears throat> a little more like Laban and Jacob. Not as big a deal, but bigger ones are to come. We've got to pass the little ones, handle them right. And if we don't handle them right, then we'd better learn from them and be ready to handle the next one right. Because until we learn to handle it right, it will keep coming. I can guarantee that. Until we learn wisdom, until we learn trust and faith in God, we will continue to have trouble. And then, once we do have that faith in God, that faith will even then be tested to see how strong it is. Abraham was tested over and over. 
And don't you think he had fear when God told him, go sacrifice your son? Yes, he did. And so did Isaac. But they handled it. Because they trusted God. What if God himself told you to sacrifice one of your children? It'd be a little scary, wouldn't it? How much do you trust God? When God said, when Christ himself directly said, any of you who are not willing to leave home, father, mother, brother, sister, children, home, land, whatever, for my sake. I don't want you. If you're afraid of losing what you have instead of losing your relationship with me, then your relationship with me is done. That's what... All human life and experience has been about, brethren, is learning to trust God instead of fearing man. What did Christ directly say? And we'll probably get to it if this series ever ends or gets to the New Testament. Don't fear him who is able to destroy the body, but him who is able to destroy both body and soul. Eternal life. That is the probably very hardest lesson that human beings have to learn. <clears throat> is to trust God when the going gets tough. Then is when the tough get going. All right, let's go on. Chapter 35, verse 5. He said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. That's up to Jerusalem. Go down to verse 5. And they journeyed, <clears throat> and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them, and they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. Now, Jacob had started out earlier in his life living in fear, of father-in-law, of brother, of various ones in his experience. And over a period of time, as he obeyed God, those around him, the nations, the peoples, wherever he went, lived in terror of him. And he was a benign, benign nice guy. He was not a great warrior like David was. But because of God's deliverance, because of God working in his life, they had a terror of Jacob and his children. Now we'll see God's promises along those lines in Deuteronomy and other places. Wouldn't it be nice... If we were in a position where the nations feared us rather than us fearing the nations. 
Stay tuned. There is a day coming when the rulers and the kings of this world will be so scared they wet themselves because of God's people. They will live in terror of us. Look at us today and see if you believe that. That's what the Holy Scriptures say. They will fear us so much, they try to kill every one of us. And 90% of what was the church, they will take into slavery, and most they will kill, if not all. Except that 10% remnant that gathers to be the temple of God. We know that. We have that truth. It should humble us deeply when we have understanding that the rest of the church simply does not have. And it should make us fear God that He would show us a way out. Others will see it and come. But they'll have to see God's hand, not yours and mine, because ours isn't much. It's nothing. They aren't beating our doors down now, are they? Because we're nothing. But when they see the hand of God, they'll come. But then only 10%. Even with the very hand of God, most will not respond. They will fear. They will want, not want to leave where they are and what they have and what they're doing. Unfortunately, they'll not be willing to obey God. And it's going to be sad. It's going to hurt. Let's go to... Let's see. I want 32. No, I wanted... Let's go on past Jacob here. I want to get down to, uh, to Joseph. 42, I guess, is where I want to go. <clears throat> well, you know the story here where uh, there was drought in the land. Jacob had his sons. Joseph was his favorite son out of all the sons. And he had made him the coat of many colors. And he had shown favoritism toward Joseph. Now, most of us who have been in families, if we've been in one where some children were favored over others, we know some of the milieu that occurs, some of the problems that arise, the jealousies and the resentments that can be there when we maybe are not favored as much as someone else or don't think we are, and sometimes it's true. And it causes all kinds of problems. Well, in this case, we know the story of how Joseph was captured by his brothers. Now, Joseph went through a great deal of fear in his life. You know, when your brothers take you and they can't decide quite what to do with you, so they dump you in a pit while they sit around and talk about you. And they talk about killing you. And then they talk about selling you into slavery. You're scared. Because you know how they feel about you. 
And you, you, you loved that feeling of favoritism and you loved that coat of many colors. You loved feeling the warm glow of daddy. But you also did not enjoy the resentment and the hatred and the spiteful, nasty remarks that the brothers made all the time. And then when you really realized that they weren't just joking, but they meant business, and they were sitting around the hole talking about killing you on the spot, it would generate great fear. There's always fear of the unknown. It would have been pretty good relief to hear him say, I don't think we ought to kill him. Oh, could he? Could he? Oh, they're not going to kill me. I think we ought to sell him to these. Oh, that doesn't sound too good either. That would also scare you. And then when they dragged you out of the hole and sold you to these people, and you were going into Egypt as a slave to be sold to whoever bought you, if you lived, great terror would come over you. Joseph went through a lot of it. And then Potiphar bought him, and things looked better, didn't they? He made him ruler of the whole house and everything, and then Potiphar's wife took a shine to him. And that was scary, because here he was, a slave child, and he figured correctly that if he messed with Potiphar's wife, he would be in deep trouble, and probably lose his life over it. But she kept after him. And then, one day, she really pushed it, and he ran. But unfortunately, she had hold of his garment and ripped his clothes off, so he ran out of there, maybe buck naked, maybe he had something underneath. But the cat was out of the bag, and then, of course, a woman scorned was not very happy. So she blamed it all on him, said he tried to rape her. Now, that story got around to him, finally. And he was really scared. I'm sure when he was called before Potiphar, he was trembling in his shoes if he had any. Then he was cast into prison for seven years. And he feared whether he would ever get out of there or not. I'm in this hole. What am I going to do? He made the best of it, befriended everybody there, and actually was made ruler under the warden. Of the whole prison. But he went through a great deal of terror, didn't he? But he never strayed from God. Now this was Joseph. This was one of our forefathers. Look at all the things he went through. But he never strayed from God. Never gave up faith in God. But stayed the course steadily all the way through. He had a great deal to fear. Now, it's ironic that God turned this around. Then when the famine got so great, and by that time he had been made ruler under Pharaoh of everything and had spent time storing up grain and and all, and he was pretty secure at this point. But his family now was insecure. Jacob sent... The other son saved Benjamin down to Joseph, not knowing it was Joseph, down to Egypt, to get grain that they might live. And he recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. He had different garb and different hairdo, and everything was different in Egypt than it had been there. And he had learned the Egyptian language and had lost his Jacobian accent. 
he used fear on them. Turned it around. Hid their money in their sacks. And when they found it, ooh, they got scared. They knew they would be accused of getting stolen about them. And here come Pharaoh's men, Joseph's men, to catch them with the money and the grain. He instilled a fear in them. And that story went on. And even in Genesis 50, after he had identified himself and they had wept together and everything, they still feared that Jacob one day was going to get vengeance. Clear down at the end of the book of Genesis, they were still afraid. And he said, no, was, didn't God put me here for a purpose? Couldn't you guys see that God was, had his hand in this thing all the way through? Now, it looked pretty dark at times, didn't it? We could lose our homes. We could lose our jobs. We could lose everything we've got. We might not have anything to eat. Oh, woe is us. Joseph saw God's hand in it all the way through. And he remained faithful to God. And God worked it all out, didn't he? Everything that they had... God wanted Jacob to go down to Egypt. God wanted Israel to go through 430 years of slavery. God wanted lessons to be learned. He wanted that story to tell you and me in the Bible today. He wanted to be able to deliver them at the Red Sea and deliver them from the death of the firstborn and all the things He delivered them from there in the book of Exodus. He wanted that on record that God is God and that He can and will deliver His people from any and everything that comes against them if they will but trust Him, obey Him, and serve Him. There were lessons that needed to be learned to be historical evidence and spiritual evidence today. And God was very meticulous in how He did it. And in the things He allowed His people to go through, the fear of death, the fear of famine, the fear of disease, the fear of anything and everything that a human being can possibly fear. Loss of their children there. When Pharaoh decided there were getting to be too many Israelites, kill all the males. No one yet has threatened to come kill all our male children, have they? Or rape and kill our daughters, for that matter. They haven't done it yet. Are they going to? Yes, they are. They're going to threaten those very things. And in fact, to most of this nation, they're going to do those very things. Now, we have a leg up. We know God. At least we know Him somewhat. We better learn a lot about Him. That's what I'm trying to do here is educate us. To help us see the flow of history. And what God worked out over hundreds of years with the children of Jacob and Joseph down to Moses. For the express purpose of teaching lessons and showing His mighty hand. Now, is God the same yesterday, today, and forever? Yes, He is. 
Are we also going to face those same things they faced? Yes, we are. Can we prepare ourselves ahead of time to know what kind of heart-pounding fear we are going to face and to know how to handle it? Where to go and what to do? The God who so meticulously and carefully worked all these things out in these men's lives is the same God who's working in our lives. The whole scripture backs that up. That's not me that's saying that. We'll get to the New Testament. We'll get to Revelation. We'll get to all the things God has promised when fear comes upon us. We had better be grounded in God's Word. The just shall live by faith, not fear. They will trust God with their lives, with their families, with everything. And believe that whatever happens, it will all turn out good. The homes they had in Egypt, they lost. The jobs, albeit slavery jobs, they had, they lost. I don't know what a seven, eight, nine, ten buck an hour job is today other than pretty much slavery. Barely make enough to barely scrape by on. Slaves to the system. Can God deliver us out of it? What if we lose our jobs as minimum wage slaves? Or almost minimum wage slaves? Is that going to shake us up? God isn't here! Oh no! We're all losing our jobs! We're going to die here in the desert! No, we're not. Not if we trust God. Will we have to cross that bridge? Will we have to face that? Might be. How many believers we got? How many have we got that are willing to walk by faith and not fear? Probably not as many as we'd like to have. But if we find ourselves fearful, let's find a solution. I'm spending a lot of time on this because I think it is imperative. I think it's important. We need to address these issues because it's all coming down very quickly in front of us. Well, that's a summary of Joseph, and we are directly Joseph, probably Ephraim. Let's go to Exodus 2. I've already sort of fast-forwarded this, so we might as well go here. Here's the story where Moses had been raised, raised by Pharaoh's daughter. Now, that doesn't just happen, does it? Some Hebrew slave whom his parents fear is going to be killed, so they put him in a basket and float him in the river among the reeds where they hope that he won't be found. And here comes Pharaoh's daughter. 
royalty tripping down by the river to bathe. And she finds a basket and says, oh, a little child, I think I want to keep this one. Now, she'd have literally, can't talk, she'd have really been her father's daughter. She'd have said, there's a Hebrew child, kill it. That's what dad said to do. Like, that one's cute. I think I'll keep it. Is that happenstance? Moses grew up in Pharaoh's court. He became pretty much a prince, a ruler in Egypt. That didn't just happen. God was directing these things very, very meticulously to have His will be done and have that baby saved. That particular one He wanted. There are a lot of babies of a lot of Hebrew mothers that died. Just as when Herod tried to kill Christ and ordered all the male babies to die. Does history repeat itself? Do patterns come and come again? This whole Bible is the same story over and over and over in a pattern designed to be addressed in the end time. And we're to learn from the patterns that are back here. Anyway... He may have been a prince of Egypt, but he still, by blood, was a Hebrew. And he knew that. But he loved his own people, and he knew who they were. The story, I'm sure, had come out some, at some point. And he knew that it was a no-no to kill Egyptians. You just weren't supposed to do that, because they were better than Hebrews. There was racism way back then. Anyway, he saw a Hebrew being mistreated by an Egyptian. Verse 12 of chapter 2, and he looked this way and that way. You do that because of fear. He didn't want to get caught, didn't want to be seen, but he had something in mind here. So he looked both ways, and when he saw that there was no man that he could see anyway, he slew the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. Now, why did he bury him? Because he was afraid. He didn't want the Egyptian to be found. If they'd have been found and traced back to him... He would have lost his life. And when he went out the second day, probably a little looking around, does anybody know, did anybody see me? I don't think anybody saw me, but he was afraid. Two men of the Hebrews were fighting each other, and he said to them, what did the wrong? Why do you smite your brother? And he said, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you kill the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. He was trembling in his boots at that point. If you just murdered somebody and the next second day, somebody says, you're going to kill me like you killed that Egyptian? Oop. I've been found out. That would be abject terror, would it not? Can you imagine yourself killing somebody and burying them in a shallow grave in the sand? And somebody come up to you and say, I saw that. Now, when Pharaoh heard this thing, he sought to slay Moses, but Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh. Now, this was a pretty scary situation. Moses had gone from being in Pharaoh's family, a prince of Egypt, 
highly respected in the land, to a fugitive fleeing for his very life. Now, if God intended to use Moses, and he delivered him from the bulrushes, and he had raised him up in Pharaoh's court to be a deliverer for his people, would God allow Moses to kill somebody and then have to flee from Egypt where the Israelites were and needed delivered? Would God let something like that happen to a chosen one such as Moses? Yes. Would he let Paul go to jail? Yes. Would he let Peter get hung upside down? Yes. God had a purpose in mind. Moses needed some tempering and training out in the desert. Just like John the Baptist, he says, you'll be in the desert until you're revealed to Israel. It had to be done. Did Moses understand that? I doubt as he was running from Pharaoh that he was thinking, God's doing this on purpose to save me. God's doing this on purpose to deliver his people. That's probably not the way he was thinking. He was thinking, I better run faster or I die. Anyway, he wound up out in the land of Midian and saw seven girls. Some of his troubles began to go away in his own mind. So he married one of them and he stayed there on the back of the mountain for a long time and got trained before he went back to do the job that God had originally intended him to do in the first place. Now, is God forgetful? Or did he remember Moses just like he remembered Joseph? Did he let him go through a lot of trouble, pain, and heartache, and fear? Yes, he did. Is he going to let us go through some trouble and heartache and fear? Yes, he is. No doubt. That is the pattern that God has established, and it's the way he works. Now, do you find that acceptable? Is the way God works acceptable to you? Now, you hate to be scared, don't you? And you hate things to come along that would frighten you, don't you? But God's going to allow them. It's going to happen. Already has and will some more. I'll guarantee that based on the Word of God and Him claiming that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So you are going to live in terror. It's going to come upon you. Guaranteed. If God is to use you, if He's to use me, if He's to use us to do anything for Him, He's got to know us and He's got to have put us through the paces. It's the way He's always done it. Are you convinced, brethren? Are you personally convinced that whatever happens in your life will work together for the good, as Paul expressed it? Even if it appears very, very bad. Even if we went through some terrible trials and troubles right here. Would you begin to doubt God's hand? Would you begin to doubt the things that brought you here in the first place? 
because we went through trouble. All God would have to say is, O you of little faith. The just shall live by faith. That's the way we live. That's the way we walk. That's the way we react. That's what we have to learn to be. So that we know that whatever comes, it will turn out for the best in the long run. We're not here for the short run, we're here for the long run. Run itself is kind of a strange word to use there. Because you run when you're scared. Frightened. So we say the short run and the long run, because usually we're running from something. Either on a short-term basis or a long-term basis. God's people always have been. Until Christ returns, that is going to be the case. He's going to protect some, and they'll live in peace without fear. As an example to the way the rest of the world will live later on when Christ is here for good. Anyway, three, chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 6. This is where the burning bush came. Verse 6, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father. When he went to the bush, this is what was said to him. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I'm the God of your fathers. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, he'd been afraid of Pharaoh. He'd been afraid of the Egyptians. Now he was learning a fear of God. And you know what God did in this story? Before it was all over, the very government of Egypt that he was afraid of, he had to go back and face. That which he ran from, he had to walk back and face head on. Now that Pharaoh had died and the story of him killing an Egyptian had faded into the past. But Egypt was still strong. And Israel were still slaves. And he still, in the back of his mind, knew that the story could come up again. And he knew that even if it didn't, he was facing a tremendous task of going and telling a Pharaoh of Egypt, that he would like to have these Israelites dismissed from slavery, and I want all of your servants, Pharaoh, to come follow me out into the desert. <laughs> yeah, sure. You bet. You guys can just pack up and leave right now. It wasn't going to be that easy. But he had to face his fears, didn't he? Didn't get off the hook. All those years later, he had to come back. A changed man, a tested man, a tried man, a faithful man to do the job that God gave him. And it was a fearful job. The end time witnesses, I'm not speaking of two, but the witnesses, plural, many times over, 
of Isaiah 43 or to face these same fears and to face this new government that is coming. Who do we fear? What time is it getting to be here? Uh, let's go to chapter 14 of Exodus, chapter 14. And here I want about verse 10. This is where Israel was allowed to leave. And now they had journeyed out. They had gone through all those fearful plagues. Even the first of the plagues came upon them. What was the third or fourth one before they were delivered out of them? And God made a separation. They went through an awful lot before God protected them. I think, and this has been used in the church for 50 years and more that I know of, we've always said that God would probably allow us to go through the trouble at the beginning of the end of this age before He finally made a separation. And in fact, if you read Matthew 24, it says that there will become famines and wars and, uh, and pestilence and the sword, and they would come after us before verse 15, where it says, when you see the abomination set up in the temple, flee for your lives. And we're going to go through part of it, brethren. And what we are seeing coming, the pestilence, the famine, the disease that is now encroaching upon the world and now beginning to come to our own nation. We're going to go through part of it. I think I could guarantee that based on the patterns of the past. We're not going to get off scot-free. We'll go through some very troublesome times before we're delivered, before we're accounted worthy, if we are accounted worthy to escape these things. So when the trouble comes down, it's coming down partly on us. Just thought you might want to know that. Have be, be secure that God loves you as much as He loved ancient Egypt and or ancient Israel, excuse me. And He allowed some of that to come down on them before He delivered them. I see no reason why that pattern won't be a, uh, repeated. And I see reason in Matthew 24 that it will be repeated because that's what it says. Trouble will come, you'll go through some of it, and you will betray one another and have each other killed, because iniquity shall abound. We are going to have people within the church of God betraying one another to the death. To the outside authorities. It's going to happen. Father against son and son against mother. Children against children. Betraying their very own kinfolks to the death. It's prophesied. going to happen. Can't deny it. Can't escape it. Until God makes a separation. Will He? Yes, He will. Let's pick it up here. See the story. When Pharaoh drew near... Verse 10, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Eternal. <coughs> they had been introduced to him, even though they didn't even know his name at first. And they said to Moses, now they cried out, did they really expect an answer? 
They were sore afraid. They cried out to God. And then they turned on Moses, the representative of God. Were they walking in faith in God? Not at all. They said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, you've taken us away to die in the wilderness. Why have you dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, We told you so, Moses! (laughs) We told you before we ever left there this thing wasn't going to work out. We told you, don't you remember that? Now here they come, and we're all going to die. You lied to us. We listened to you. You didn't tell us the truth. Is not this the word that we did tell you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? You're crazy. Moses would rather stay here and work for the Egyptians than go out there in that desert and die, because that's what's going to happen. That we should die in the wilderness. What did Moses say? Moses said to the people, Fear you not. Now you have all these chariots with a thundering roar coming down on you. You've got mountains on the sides and you've got an ocean in front of you. And an army of chariots coming and you're not armed. And your wives and children and animals are about to die, and so are you. So you're scared spitless, okay? And this guy that you just said, I told you so, stands up and says, don't fear! Give me a break. I'm scared to death, and he's telling me not to be afraid. Was that the thing to say? It would not be popular, would it? Moses said, fear you not. Stand still. In other words, don't pick up anything that's around to fight the Egyptians with. Stand still and see the salvation of the Eternal, which He will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Eternal shall fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Now, that went against every emotion they were feeling at that moment. They were ready to defend themselves to the death with whatever they could find to do it with. Their normal, natural human reactions were not to be listened to. They were to stand still, and faith is implied here very strongly. Stand still and trust God, because that's what faith is. God will fight this battle for you. You don't have anything to worry about. 
don't even be afraid. Fear God, not man, is the message. Do we get the point? There is nothing that is coming that you need to fear. Now that goes against every emotion you have. But God said, if we will obey Him, He will save us. And that we can pray to be delivered. And believe it. Mean it. See, they didn't mean it here when they cried to the Eternal. What kind of cry was it? Oh God, I'm dying! Oh God, you said you'd deliver us and you aren't! That was how they cried to God. That's obvious in the way they approached Moses, who was a representative of God. You brought us out here to die, you and that God. That's how much they had faith in God. That's how much they saw God working in their lives. They didn't see God working in their lives at all. Do you see God working in your life? Are you studying this book? Are you praying to get to know God? Are you walking by the things you do read in this book because God's protection is always contingent? God's blessings are always contingency blessings. Every time I find myself getting a little frustrated or thinking, well, why doesn't God just do something? I have to turn it around and say, why doesn't Daryl just do something? Why don't I repent? Why don't I clean up my thoughts? Why don't I be the kind of person I ought to be? Why don't I live in faith? Why don't I do a lot of things? Why don't I treat you better than I do? Why aren't I more patient? Why aren't I more loving? Why aren't I more a thousand things I could think of? And if I do those things, I have nothing to worry about. It's just getting me to do it that's the problem. It's getting me to be everything I'm supposed to be in serving God with my whole heart, not what part of it I want to give Him at the moment while I keep some of it somewhere else. My home, my wife, my children, my health, my whatever it is. Why can't I trust God? For everything. Because it's contingent. And he said, if we'll turn loose and trust Him, He will take care of us. Now, in this case, He had trained Moses, and He let Moses know ahead of time what the story would be. So Moses could stand up and not fear and obey God. And direct the people to the correct course rather than the wrong one. But they turned on the only one that God had put there to lead them in the right path. 
Now that story is repeated over and over throughout the Bible. All the way through the Old and the New Testament. They've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. I sent you. They rejected you. And in rejecting you, they really were rejecting me. And when they rejected Moses here, they were rejecting God. Now, God has always sent human leaders. And God has always backed those leaders. And any time people have rebelled against those leaders, those people have gotten in trouble. Remember that. Because God is going to send us leaders here in the end time as well. And we had better be prepared to listen to them, hadn't we? Because if we don't, we will be in trouble. That is the way God works. That is the way He has always worked. If you find, sometime in the future, that God has sent leaders, you had better listen to them. You do not have the option not to. That's the way God works. It's the way He's always worked. What happened to Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? I'm not just talking about Korah or Achan or various others in the Old. What happened in the New Testament when times were dramatic? Where there were healings, there were gifts of tongues, there were all kinds of things dramatically happening for the good. And God also reacted dramatically against the bad. And they were struck dead. God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Whoever God sends to lead us, we had better listen to. That lesson is repeated over and over and over through the Bible. You know, and human beings don't like that. Well, I'll listen to God, but I'm not going to have any man tell me what to do. See, that's one of the main reasons that God has always worked through men. is because He knows there is a natural animosity, a natural rebellion in us, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to give up our sovereignty, our autonomy, our pride, our ego, whatever it might be, and listen to men. But that's one of the best ways God has of humbling us. He just doesn't appear to all of us at all times. Christ even told His very apostles, I'll not speak much more with you until I return. And there were very, very few cases recorded after that where He appeared to them or spoke to them directly. He taught Paul in the desert. He did in a very, very few occasions. But he's not appeared much since then, period. He's worked through men, just like he did in the Old Testament. You see, it's hard for God to get people to follow him. And even if he sends someone to tell us to follow him, it's hard, and our natural resentment of people and men comes to the forefront. So God says... You've got to listen to the ones I send, and you've got to respond to it. Now, that doesn't mean they stand in the place of God. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that here. It's a family. 
Now, in a family, the father is the key figure. That's the way the Bible has it written. The mother is there to help serve the father. And she is not in direct line authority between the father and the children, even though mothers sometimes will try to interfere and protect the children from dad. That happens in human families. Don't hit him again! Oh, no, no, they're crying and they'll get between and get hit themselves. Now, the way it should be is the father is the head and the mother is his helper, but the children have a direct access to their father. They can go to daddy anytime they want to. And the mother is over here to the side in an authority line to point the children to their father, who should be the kind of father he ought to be so that mama could point to him. But she doesn't stand between the children and daddy. And the church is like the mother. You have direct access to God the Father through Emmanuel the King, whom we called Jesus Christ. But I think we've upgraded that to God with us instead of God is salvation. You can go to God the Father anytime through Christ Himself. The church is here as a mother to help point you to God and to get you to go to God. The church is not the intermediary between you and God like the Pope tries to be between the people and Christ. It doesn't work that way in God's government. It's autocratic. The Father is in charge. The mother is second in command. And she is over the children, yes. But she's not between the children and father. And the church cannot be either. So when the church tries to get between you and God, the church is in the wrong position. We're here to point you to God. To tell you about God. But we also speak with a voice of authority because God does use government from the top down, always has. It's just we haven't always understood how it ought to operate and it was misused and abused in worldwide many, many times over. We, like the Pope, <laughs> thought we stood between the people and God. And they had to go through the church to get to God. No, you don't. That's not the way God set it up. Go to God any time. Go to the mother to help you with your relationship with God is what it amounts to. And God has put men there to do that. Man will never in this life be in the place of God. God is in his place. And men better remember to stay in their place and point you to the place. Okay? Well, that was a lesson there. They rebelled against God, and they rebelled against the one that God had sent to them. But we're out of time, so let's stop right there. But some big lessons here to think about, some things to learn.